Amen. Wow. It's been a journey. Is that yours? There you go. Okay. We are here. It's the last night. But not the last time we will get together and worship. Amen. Just need to grab my notes out and pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit always needs permission to edit as we go, right? Okay, so, um, man, I have thoroughly enjoyed this journey with every one of you. And um, I just want to thank you guys for coming out one last time. So we're going to get started with our message tonight, Liberty on the Line. That's been our theme. And now we're going to end with a discussion on liberty on the line. So let's pray. Father God, Lord, one last time during this series, we want to ask that you would again speak to us. We ask for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I ask for the anointing of the Holy Spirit that my words might be guided by you. Lord, I just ask that we would hear words from on high, that you would hide me behind your cross, and that you would impress us, each one of us, with a sense of our duty and calling at such a time as this in earth's history. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The United States of America, the home of the brave, the land of the free. Words that ring true in the heart of every American that's proud of their nation still today. It was September 14, 1814. Does anybody know the significance of that date in American history? It's a fun one. But to give you a hint, the United States of America, in its infancy as a new nation, was entrenched in another war, the War of 1812. You see, under the direction of the King of Britain, the United Kingdom had come back with the sole objective to punish its rebellious child and bring her back into subjection to her great power. Thankfully, we know the record of history that the war didn't really go favorably for either side, and it was pretty much eventually called off. But on September 14, the morning of September 14, 1814, Francis Key Scott looked out from his prison on that ship of the British Navy, and he saw that flag still standing. He had heard the bombardment through the night, and he was helpless to do anything about it, but when he saw the flag still flying the next morning, he wrote these famous words. In fact, let's see if we can sing the first verse of the national anthem together tonight. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous flight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. 
and the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. Amen. 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 There we go. That's an American tradition, right? So these were the words that were written, but those aren't the only words. We only know the first verse today. But Francis Key Scott would go on to write after the first verse. On the shore dimly seen through the midst of the deep, where the foe's haughty host in dread silence repose. What is that which the breeze or the towering steep as it fitfully blows, half conceals and half discloses. Now it catches the gleam of the morning's first beam, in full glory reflected now shines in the stream. Tis the star-spangled banner, oh long may it wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. And where is that band who so valiantly swore that the havoc of war and the battle's confusion, a home and a country, should leave us no more? Their blood was washed out, their foul footsteps' pollution. No refuge could save the airling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. And the star-spangled banner in triumph doth wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. And in the last verse he would write, Or thus be it ever. When the free man shall stand between their loved home and war's desolation, blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. What words these are, right? I mean, we've lost sight of this as a nation. Blessed with the victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Thus conquer we must when our cause is just, and this be our motto, in God we trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. The United States of America was birthed as a precious land of liberty. And while liberty and freedom was on the line back in the day of Francis Key Scott, he wrote these powerful words which should still ring true to us today. Words that have inspired generations with pride in their country. But you know, my friends, we as a people, as children of God at the end of time, as much as I'm proud to be an American, That's not the banner that I stand under. But rather, I stand under that bloodstained banner to praise Jehovah, the King of Kings. In 1999, an earthquake devastated the country of Turkey, like it did this year, actually. And as people were 
going through the rubbish and some of the inspectors were coming through, they made a sad discovery that many of the buildings were not built up according to the codes that had been passed years ago. Thousands of buildings collapsed in the timber, were poorly constructed, and many lives might have been saved if only they had followed the code. According to the external appearances, everything looked great. There was no indication of problems. Everything looked fine. But when the earth shook, it became painfully obvious that what appeared to be solid was anything but that. You know, in the final days of earth's history, a time of trouble will shake the world like never before, and only those who have built their faith according to the word of God are going to stand the test at the end of time. And so this leads me to my first question tonight. Are you building on a solid foundation, the solid foundation of the Word of God? Who is the Word of God? Well, we know John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is the living Word, and He, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11, is the only foundation that you and I can lay. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, Jesus Christ. We've been taking a journey this week deeper into the prophecies of the Bible. Last night, we studied the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the little horn. And we looked at these four beasts that would rise up. We spent some time discussing the little horn, which has some characteristics In fact, we're going to go over these characteristics. I put them in your packet so you can look them up for yourself. All the references are to Daniel chapter 7, so you can see where this is coming from. But on the screen, we're going to notice that the little horn was to be different from all the rest. It would come up in the midst of the ten horns. Three would be uprooted before it. The Ostrogoths, the Vandals, and the Heruli, right? And the Ostrogoths were the last ones to be destroyed and wiped out as an empire and a nation. They were wiped out by the general, Berthier, no, uh, Belisarius, from the Eastern Roman Empire. And when Belisarius left to go back to King Justinian, he left the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, in charge of the civil government for the first time. For the first time, the Christian religion was mingled with civil power, something that God never designed. It would make war with the saints, Not only would it make war with the saints, but it would speak great things against the Most High. It would wear out the saints. It would think to change times times and laws, and it would reign for times, times, and half a time, 1260 years of darkness. Don't forget Daniel 7 and the identifying characteristics of the little horn. The papacy is what we concluded last night, is the only power that could ever meet these specifications. It's not Antiochus Epiphany, as some people say. It's not um, some of these other characters in history. No, the little horn power can only be represented by the papacy. Now, notice in their own words what they say. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday. Now, we talked this morning about the search for God's church. 
And one of the things that we must recognize, and this is something that I practice as a minister of the gospel, we talked about the fact that there are sheep and other folds that God is calling. We talked about the fact that God also has a true church, that none of us can claim to be the church or to say that we can be independent of the church. God has a church. He wants you to be a part of that church because we're to be members of the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is composed of many members, not one individual, not one individual that thinks they're super amazing and can be independent of the body. No. Don't let, ever, don't let anyone ever tell you, I am the church. No, you're not. <laughs> you're just not. And you can't pick and choose whatever you want from the Word of God. So I say all that to say, as a pastor, you know, something that I've been doing recently is I've been mingling with pastors of other denominations because God cares for them too. God wants to see other people encounter the gospel. So that doesn't mean we say, well, we're so much better because we have this knowledge. No, God has given us a mission to love everyone, no matter what their walk in life, to love them and to draw them to Christ. Okay? So really, when we talk about the papacy, we're not talking about the people, we're talking about the system. The system is the problem. The system that reigned for 1260 years from 538 AD to 1798, when papal supremacy reigned over Europe, it was a very, very dark time. We talked about this, 538, General Belisarius from the Eastern Roman Empire delivers Rome from the siege of the Ostrogoths. It's the final of the three kingdoms that's uprooted before the Pope comes to power. Then, on February 10, 1798, Napoleon's General Berthier marches down to Rome and takes Pope Pius VI captive, ending the power that the Church had held throughout the Middle Ages, which became known as the Dark Ages. General Berthier gives the papacy the deadly wound by bringing an end to its supremacy. Now, one of the things that we learned last night is the Dark Ages were dark for many reasons. It wasn't just because you had to adhere to one dogma of Scripture or you die. It wasn't just because if you kept the true Sabbath, you would be persecuted, right? Like the Waldensians who were thrown off cliffs because they were faithful to God. There were other reasons, right? The public school system mocks us as Christians for being out of harmony with science. And one of their classic examples is to point to Galileo who discovers that the earth is round. Galileo discovers that the earth is round because he was a Christian. He was a Protestant. He had joined the Reformation and he was making scientific advancement because he believed in the God of the Bible. It's a lot of interesting history. But for 1260 years, Europe is in darkness. But this isn't the end of the story of Bible prophecy. This isn't the end. If you have your Bibles, I would like to invite you to open them with me. It's in your packets too tonight, but I'd like to invite you to open them with me to Revelation chapter 13. My prayer is tonight that tonight's message, along with all the other messages that we've heard, will spark personal curiosity for you to go and examine the Scriptures for yourselves. If you ever have questions about what I'm saying, feel free to ask me personally. I emphasize this tonight because... We're not able to cover everything in depth in Revelation chapter 13. We are going to be focusing primarily on the mark of the beast 
and the force and coercion that's going to come with that at the end of time. To do so, we will be looking at some important content in Revelation 13. We will go through every verse. I won't go into depth on every verse, but tonight we will go through the entire chapter. So we're going to pick up in verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten hordes, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like a bear, and his mouth was like a lion. The dragon gave him his power, and his throne had, a great, had great authority. Now, as we're reading this, there should be some familiar things that are beginning to stick out to us, right? Okay, let's just think about this, right? Every characteristic that we just heard should actually take our minds back to Daniel chapter 7. The beast rises up out of the sea, right? Just like the beast of Daniel 7. As we learned last night in Bible prophecy, the sea represents peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, meaning that this beast power, which is a kingdom, according to Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, these were kingdoms, these beast powers that would rise, would rule over a great multitude of people, okay? Now, I'm just going to put that on the screen. The waters which you saw, Revelation 17 and verse 15, where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Now, this isn't the only reference in the Bible that helps us understand that water represents a great multitude of people, but this is just one, okay? Secondly, when we look back here at the beast that is described here in Revelation 13, we're going to see that this beast is comprised of all the same animals that show up in Daniel chapter 7. A mouth like a lion, feet like a bear, and it looked like a leopard. When we combine the beasts of Daniel 7 into 1, we get a beast with seven heads, right? You had the lion, the bear, the dreadful beast, the fourth beast, that's three heads. And then if you remember, the leopard had four heads, okay? So when we combine all these beasts together, we get a beast with seven heads. And so what we can see is the Bible is about to show us something very very fascinating, okay? What we have here in Revelation 13 is a composite of the four beasts of Daniel 7. Now, this is significant because while all these kingdoms were conquered, their impact and influence in the world has never been erased. You can actually study this. One of the ways that you can study this is the history of the educational system. Greek philosophy has never been erased from society. Babylonian thinking has never actually been erased from society. While these kingdoms may not exert the power that they once did, their thinking, their systems have never been erased. And so we see this mode of operation showing up in this final great and dreadful beast which receives the deadly wound. Okay? The little horn rises up from the fourth beast. We also learn that the dragon gives this beast its power. Who is the dragon? Well, if you remember, just turning back one chapter in your Bible, Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 9, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, and they did not prevail, nor was there a place found for them any longer in heaven. So 
the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast out to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So we now know very clearly that the dragon is the one behind this beast power. The dragon is the one empowering the beast to do all the signs and wonders and to look as great as it does. We keep reading now back in Revelation chapter 13, recognizing that the devil is behind this beast power, we read, and I saw one of its heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and this deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed after the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now, the papacy received that deadly wound back in 1798, but it most definitely has been healed. Presidents and world leaders in recent history have been flocking to the Pope. Now you have to understand, guys, most of us are not old enough to remember this, but let's rewind in U.S. history to the election of President John F. Kennedy. That was a major deal for this nation. He was the first Catholic president, and Protestants all across the nation are going, hold on, hold on. As a nation, we were fleeing the religious persecution of the Catholic Church. Like, when we finally land on the shores, the pilgrims in 1610, the Protestant Reformation is not even 100 years old yet. When Plymouth is founded, this is still very much so in the height of the Protestant Reformation. And so now, when John F. Kennedy becomes elected as the first Catholic president, Like, this was a big deal if you were to rewind and read the newspapers and look at the perspectives that were going on and taking the front page narrative of the news back then. Huh? Biden's Catholic too, yeah. I mean, this is true. Now, just to keep going, we have to recognize that the world's attitude towards the papacy is changing. France, the nation which once dethroned its power, which is interesting, just a little bit of history, Um, I told you that there's the 1290. The 1290 starts in 508. What happens in 508? France takes out the Vandals at the request of the Bishop of Rome and is the first kingdom to really give power and homage to the papacy. So France gives the papacy its power initially. It fully comes to power in 538, and guess who takes it out of power? France, okay? So it's an interesting little bit of history to understand. Well, now we're beginning to see the whole world wander after this beast power again. Here we see the Pope in 2015 on the 24th of September, a Thursday, addressing a joint session of Congress. Never been done before in the history of this nation. And in 2015, the Pope also issued a letter called Laudato Si. Now, Laudato Si is a climate action letter. It's calling for all of us to take action on the climate crisis. And out of this has emerged groups like the Green Sabbath Project. Is there nothing you can do about the environment? Nothing may be the one thing, the, one of the best things you can do. One day every week, do nothing. The Green Sabbath project. Now, this has been picking up popularity. The idea that we need to have a forced day of rest where we do nothing because of 
COVID, this is what really gave it some heat. People are saying, well, we locked down and it gave the world a break. Mother Nature was finally given a break. So what would it look like if once a week everyone had to lock down and shelter in place? Now, why do I bring this out? We identified that the little horn power was the papacy. And when we're talking about this conglomerate beast that receives a deadly wound, we recognize that it is also the papacy here. We're repeating the timeline. In fact, we're going to see this again here in this chapter. And then we're going to notice a theme in Revelation chapter 13 that has to do with worship. Who are you going to worship? Who are you going to give first place in your life? the God of the Bible, or the world. And if the world has first place in your heart, then you will comply with the beast. You will. That's what's going to happen. And these are choices that we have to make now. The political landscape is changing. If you notice that our Supreme Court justices, almost every single one of them, I think at least seven out of the nine Supreme Court justices are all Catholics. And again, remember I told you, it's not that Catholics are bad people. It's the system that's the problem. But you have to recognize that that's a shift in the political landscape as a nation that would have never happened years ago. We're living in a changing nation. Now, verse 5. This beast was given a mouth. This is how we know that we're talking about the papacy again with certainty. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Now remember, we identified that the Jewish year from history was 360 days. That was how long their year was, okay? Now one month was 30 days in length. 42 times by 30 brings us to 12 160. Pull out your calendar, uh, calculators. You can do this on your phone. But 42 months, I told you there's three different ways that the 1260 appears in the Bible. It appears seven times. 42 months, 1260, and times, times, and half a time. Those are the three ways that it appears in the Bible. Okay? As we saw last night, the papacy was the one who reigned for 1260 years. And while it reigned, it opened his mouth in blasphemy against God. So now we're starting to hear some repeating concepts from Daniel chapter 7, right? While it reigned, verse 6 of Revelation 13. Remember, one of the things that it did is it would be different from all the rest. It makes war with the saints. But notice this, it would speak great things against the Most High. Here we are in Revelation verse 13, verse 6, while it reigned. It opened its mouth, thus he, then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with who? With who? The saints. Okay, now we're starting to see the same language that's used in Daniel chapter 7. It was granted with him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So I already told you that there's two choices here. Either Christ is enthroned upon your heart or you will worship the beast. That's what verse 8 just told you, right? It says, all who dwell on the earth will 
worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now in this verse, we find the gospel. Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And he says to you and I tonight, I've paid the price. Come home, my child. You don't have to be blotted out of the book because I've paid the price and I want to put your name in the book with my blood because I shed my blood for you. And this is why verse 9 says, if anyone has an ear, how many of you guys have at least one ear? Right? Let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. Then we come to verse 11, and now we're going to turn up the heat. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the what? Earth. Now this is different because all the beasts that we've talked about thus far, they've all risen out of the what? The sea. Okay? And the sea represents multitudes of people. So what do you think the earth represents? Unpopulated areas. So this beast rises up out of an unpopulated area. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. This is known as the lamb-like beast of Revelation 13. Now, what does a lamb represent? Jesus. Jesus, right? Okay. So this lamb-like beast, it's not an accident that these descriptions are huge, right? We saw that the lion was very fitting to Babylon. We saw that the leopard was very fitting to Alexander the Great, who conquered the then-known world faster than anyone ever had. Thirteen years. So God uses the fastest land-dwelling mammal to describe the Greek Empire. God is incredibly detailed for good reason. So now we have this lamb-like beast that is rising up out of the earth. It's not rising up in a populated area, but rather it's rising to power in an unpopulated area, a sparsely populated area. And it has an appearance of Christ-likeness. It's lamb-like. But in the end, it speaks like a dragon. Now what final nation comes to power during this time? The United States. The lamb-like beast is the United States of America. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound has been healed. He performs signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth and the sight of men. Now this is important for us to understand. The Bible says that he's going to bring fire down from heaven. And the Bible says, Jesus said, that if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. Travis pointed out today that even John, the beloved, the one who loved Christ perhaps the most, Even he fell down and worshipped an angel, and the angel had to tell him, hold on. Did it twice. 
Now, we also talked about Elijah today. And historically in the Bible, Elijah is the last one to call down fire from heaven, and it was an act of God. But now we know that the next time fire comes down from heaven, it won't be an act of God. But do you see how great that deception is? Pretty convincing, right? Wow, this must be an act of God. Fire coming down from heaven. Did it to Sodom and Gomorrah? Normally, fire coming down from heaven is from God. But the beast power is going to perform signs and wonders, even calling fire down from heaven. And I don't know how that's going to work, but this is why, my friends, I, I urge you that we have to be students of the word for ourselves, that we have to know the voice of our shepherd, right? Jesus said, my sheep, they hear my voice and they follow me. They're not deceived. A stranger cannot lead them astray because they know me. The whole reason the Bible identifies the Antichrist power at the end of time is so that we would learn to cling to Jesus and not be deceived by the deception of he who is trying to take the place of Christ. That's the whole reason we have Bible prophecy. It's all to bring us back to Jesus. It's showing us that there's going to be a counterfeit Christ. And that counterfeit Christ does not care for you. It's coming to steal, kill, and destroy but Jesus came to give you life and life more abundantly. And he simply says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And here's the best part about it. I died so that I could write those commandments on your heart. That's what I want to do. That's what God says. He deceives all those who dwell on the earth. By those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, verse 14, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause many, as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark in their right hand or on their foreheads, that no one may buy or sell except the one who has the mark of the name of the beast and the number or the number of his name. So here's the key. They are killed if they will not worship the beast, the image of the beast. Here we come, worship. If you haven't noticed, I made sure that it was pretty much blanked, so you had to fill in that blank in your manuscript tonight. Worship, worship, worship. You will worship the beast if your name is not written in the book of the life. How is it going to happen? The beast is going to deceive and force everyone who will not comply to be killed. And this is where the rubber begins to meet the road, because logically we could justify some things. Let's put ourselves in the shoe of Abraham for just a moment right now. Abraham finally have his, has his beloved, true and only son, Isaac. And God comes to him and says, I need you to kill your only son, Isaac. I need you to offer him up as a sacrifice. Abraham could have reasoned, you know, God has said, you shall not kill. And he could have chose to ignore the voice of God. And at the end of time, when things are getting rough, COVID gave us a little bit of a preview. Like we had it easy in America, if we're being honest. There were other places where if you didn't have a vaccine, you couldn't even go into the grocery stores to buy. So that sounds somewhat like what we're reading right here. 
If you don't have the mark, you can't buy or sell. I'm not saying the vaccine is the mark. No, it's not. It has everything to do with who you're going to worship. It's not something that we receive. For those who get into the theories, is it a chip? Is it this or that? It all comes down to who are you going to worship. But let's just now put ourselves, now that we've pondered Abraham's situation, let's, to the best of our ability, put ourselves in this situation, which we can't even fully imagine what it's going to be like. We could reason just like Abraham. You know, God has said you should not kill. Well, you know, God wants me to take care of my family. God doesn't want my family to starve. You know what? I think I'm just going to go along. I don't agree. But I'm just going to go along. Because God doesn't want my family to suffer. You see how we could easily reason ourselves into saying, you know what? I'm not going to resist. This is why the mark of the beast is received in the hand and in the forehead. Some people will choose deliberately to serve the beast. And others, by their actions, by choosing not to stand up, but rather to just go with the flow, will receive it in their hand. But with God... You can only receive it in one place. The seal of God is in the forehead. It's not in the hand. There's no default with God. God doesn't want you to be forced into his worship. He wants you to choose to serve him because you serve a risen Savior who died to set you free. He says, come, my child. Go and sin no more. I have died to pay the price. I have paid the price of sin to give you lasting victory through my power. And I want you to simply shine as a beacon of hope in a world that has none. There's two systems of worship. There always has been. Since the time of Abel, there's always been two systems of worship. Abel kept God's command, and he was killed. Cain tried to work out his own salvation with the fruits of his own work, and he lost out on the kingdom of heaven. What false worship are we talking about? Well, to know the sign and authority of a king, you would have to have the signet ring. And that signet ring would tell you the dominion of that king. And there's only one command that God has given that fully meets that specification. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor, but the seventh is what? The Sabbath of the Jews? It says, The Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it you shall do no work. For in six days the Lord created the heavens and the earth, his dominion. I am the Lord. I am the creator of all that you enjoy. So when we see this false system of religion trampling upon God's Sabbath, the sign of his authority, which was to be an everlasting sign between his people, 
we may know what the false system of worship is. Have you any other way of proving the church has power to institute festivals or precepts? Reverend Stephen Keenan, Doctrinal Catechism, 1857. Had she not such power, she could not have done that which in all modern religionists agrees with her. She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day, a change, which there is no, a change for which there is no scriptural authority. If Protestants would follow the Bible, they would worship God on the Sabbath day. In keeping Sunday, they are following the law of the Catholic Church. Of course, the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act. And the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. The beast which received the deadly wound says the mark of its authority is the observance of the false Sunday Sabbath. There is coming a day when the mark of her authority will be forced upon all people again. A day in which Sunday worship will be mandated upon all the world. You know, in this great nation, just look it up, blue laws. There used to be Sunday laws that were trying to be passed. In fact, it got so serious that there was a Seventh-day Adventist by the name of A.T. Jones that appeared before the Supreme Court back at the turn of the 19th century, from the 18th to the 19th. And you want to know his argument that one was very simple. He said, if you were here today trying to mandate the observance of the Seventh-day Sabbath, we would stand in opposition to you because God does not force. You can't mandate worship because it has to come from the heart. Those who conform to the world and worship on the false Sunday Sabbath will receive the mark of the beast because force has no place in the government of God. Now I want to be clear, I'm not saying that those who go to church tomorrow have the mark of the beast. No, we should go minister to these people. In fact, you know, CJ and I, I might go visit another pastor. He's, he's, he's a nice guy. Um, Joseph, Pastor Joseph. Beautiful family. In fact, uh, when I saw this family, they understand modesty better than most Adventist churches. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. I was really impressed. And we're going to see Many people rise up. We talked about this state. There's the wheat and the tares. There's going to be a shaking. And we're going to lose some of our bright leaders. But God is going to bring in other humble leaders that are simply his sheep that know his voice. Because he said, I have sheep in other folds. And I'm going to call them and there's going to be one fold. Not 45,000 as we talked about today. There's going to be one that means there is truth, not just 45,000 versions of truth, but there is one truth, and that truth is Jesus Christ, and he is to be the author and finisher of your faith. 
Now, if you don't believe me that this day is coming soon where worship will be forced upon God's people, I want you to notice what the Republican caucus is up to. Project 2025. The Republican Party right now is so confident that we are going to win or they are going to win the presidential election because of how incognizant our current president is. That they have come up with Project 2025 Presidential Transition Project. Okay? Now, I'm going to read to you from page 920. I don't know why they have to have a plan that's like a thousand pages long, but this just seems to be the way the government works because they don't want you to see what they're really up to, so they bury the good stuff 900 pages in. Okay? So I'm going to read this to you. Sabbath rest. Hmm, that should get our attention. God ordained the Sabbath as a day of rest. This is literally in their plan. God ordained the Sabbath as a day of rest until the, very recently the Judeo-Christian tradition sought to honor that mandate by moral and legal regulation of the work on that day. Moreover, a shared date off makes it possible for families and communities to enjoy time off together rather than as automatized individuals and provides a healthier cadence of life for everyone. Unfortunately, that communal day of rest has been eroded under the pressures of consumerism and secularism, especially for low-income workers. Here's where they're going. Congress should encourage communal rest by amending the Fair Labor Standards Act to require that workers be paid time and a half for hours worked on the Sabbath. That day would default to what? Sunday. Except for employers with a sincere religious observance of Sabbath at a different time. The obligation would transfer to that period instead. So it's nice they give a toleration for those of us who keep Sabbath, as you see there, from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. But that's a temporary toleration. The fact that the Sabbath defaults to Sunday, which we know is not true, is not good. But it's a subtle step. It sounds really good. It's all about family. And it's going to be really hard to speak against something like that. But here's the thing. This great nation was founded upon the principle of religious liberty. That the government had no right to intervene in religious affairs. We believe as a nation when we were founded in separation of church and state. And this is noted here in the alternative view after this paragraph. While some conservatives believe that the government should encourage certain religious observance by making it more expensive for employers and consumers to not partake in those observances, other conservatives believe that the government's role is to protect the free exercise of religion by eliminating barriers as opposed to erecting them. Whereas, imposing overtime rules on the Sabbath would lead to higher costs and limited access to goods and services and reduce work available on the Sabbath, while also incentivizing some people through higher wages to desire to work on the Sabbath. The proper role of the government in helping to enable individuals to practice their religion is to reduce barriers to work options and to fruitful employer and employee relations. The result, ample job options do not require work on the Sabbath. So the individuals in the roles that sometimes do require Sabbath work are empowered to negotiate directly with their employer to achieve their desired goal, desired schedule. So even while they recognize that the government should stay out of this, the end conclusion is, well, yeah, there really doesn't need to be work on the Sabbath, which they said is Sunday. 
So my friends, what is the sign of God's authority? Well, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God created in Maine. Exodus, whoops, Exodus 31.13, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Exodus 31.13. Now, I pray that you've been keeping all the packets that I've been handing out. When we studied the Sabbath last Sabbath, that was a very in-depth, detailed packet on the Sabbath, which you won't get in your regular Amazing Facts Bible study. Because one of the things that we did is we pointed out that when people go to Colossians 2.16 and say, don't judge me in my Sabbath, that's all talking about the ceremonial Sabbath, which we showed you where all of those are in Scripture, that there were additional Sabbath days besides the actual Sabbath of the Lord. But God's Sabbath, the Sabbath that has been instituted at creation, which is a sign of His authority, the sign that He is the creator of this earth, and our Redeemer is unchanging, and it is to be a sign forever. Notice this, I remind you again of Numbers chapter 23, verses 19 and 20. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed it, and I cannot reverse it. What God has blessed, no man can change. No man. The Sabbath is an unchanging sign. And it is a distinguishing mark that sets God's people apart at the end of time. It's the seal. As we enter in by faith into the Sabbath rest, we are sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we notice that the sign and seal can actually be used interchangeably. Romans 4.11 says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. As we begin to close... Revelation 7, verse 1 through 3. God talks about holding back the four winds of strife until he can seal the servants of the living God in his forehead. And you want to know what's beautiful about that? He talks about the earth, the trees, and the sea. Meaning that God has his people that are even living in the world because we remember the sea is a representation of multitudes of people governed by secular governments. God has his people everywhere. And he is long-suffering, trying to hold back as long as he can the final great crisis. You know, I want to stand amongst the redeemed, and I pray you do too. I want to stand amongst those who have the Father's name written in their forehead, in the mind, the frontal lobe, the place of spiritual reasoning and decision-making. Who does the sealing? We're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does the Holy Spirit do for us? If you look at John chapter 14 through 16, we see that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth, the Comforter, the one who convicts us of sin, how to live righteously, and how to live in the day of judgment. Without the voice of the Holy Spirit, we cannot hear God. When the Holy Spirit comes to convict us of sin and say, I've, I want to change you, we have a choice to make. Do we respond or do we resist? Revelation 13, 
Verse 18 concludes, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. His number is 666. Prophecy is unfolding before our very eyes. The mark of the beast is soon to be enforced. Who will you worship? The mark of the beast will reveal where your heart is. Does the world have first place? Or does Jesus have first place? Where are you laying up your treasures? Are they being laid up in heaven? And we talked about this today. We may continually be perfect at every stage of growth as long as we continue to grow in Christ. We get onto dangerous ground when we start to resist the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit says, I want you to give this up so that I can replace it with something better. Whatever the temptation, whatever the sin, whatever the foothold may be, as we get closer to Jesus, guess what? We're going to begin to be more like him. And that means things are going to keep coming out of our life so that he can fill us with more of his power, with more of his spirit. And the only trouble that we get into is when we resist that voice. December 7, 1941, closing story tonight. We know that date, Pearl Harbor. It was before... All of us were born. I'm glad I can say that. <laughs> there are a lot of books written by survivors. In fact, one of the titles was At Dawn We Slept. But I don't know if you can imagine with me for a moment the fear as clouds of planes flew over. Well, on that day, there was two young men. They were staged towards the northwest of the island on another strip. And one of these men was Kenneth Taylor from Oklahoma. He was 21 years old. Pretty cool. Oklahoma's represented in this story. And then the other was 23 years old from Delaware, George Walsh. They had been trained in the P-40 aircraft. Quite a beautiful, beautiful machine there, at least for man's inventions. They were trained to fight in this aircraft. And a few months before, they were transferred to the northwestern side of the island when they woke up to the bombing. They realized that this was the real deal. This was not just a training drill. So they jumped in the cars, but the runway was 10 minutes away. So they were racing at over 100 miles per hour to get up there as fast as they could. When they arrived, they only had 30-millimeter uh, ammunition. But they went to fight anyways. Because this runway had been more or less retired. It was on the northwestern side. It was not in the Japanese plans for bombardment. So they were able to get up, but as immediately as they were in the air, they were swarmed. But they fought, and they fought, and they fought these two men. They fought. Well, finally, after fighting and fighting and fighting, they ran out of ammunition and were about to run out of fuel, so they landed on the basically destroyed runway somehow. And buildings were burning and they, they called out to some of their uh, comrades who came running over and they said, we need 50 millimeter ammunition and we need fuel. 
And they're like, well, that's impossible. Like, <laughs> you could see the buildings burning, but they're like, no, we must get back up and keep fighting. So finally, they could persuade their comrades to go in, and they come back with the ammunition, and they're fueling up the plane when a superior officer shows up. And the superior officer says to these young men, you're not going anywhere. I command you, you're grounded. That's an order. You can picture the dilemma. They had been trained to listen to their commanding officers. But they'd also been trained to defend their country. What do you choose? These two young men, they ran and they jumped in their P-40 aircrafts. And it is said by eyewitnesses that day that before their wheels were off the ground, their machine guns were firing. These two men actually survived and were later awarded the Victorian Medal of Honor. Now, my friends, at the end of time, we ought to obey God rather than man. Man may make decrees. Man may pass laws. But if they go against the laws of our God, we fight for his honor and his honor alone. And the weapons of our warfare are different than the weapons of man's warfare. We have the armor of God and the sword of the Spirit. And if God be for us, who can be against us? Heaven. I want to be there. And I want to be there with all of you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if that's your desire, then I want you to join me in singing our closing song as we end our meeting tonight. 327. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. I would rather have Jesus than anything. When liberty is on the line, I would rather have Jesus than anything this world could offer. I would rather stand faithful and true to that dear name than to turn my back and enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. 327, join me in singing this song. It's an appeal. If this is your heart's desire, I invite you to join me in standing as we sing. Amen. Are you certain that you'd rather have Jesus than anything this world could offer you today? In your utmost heart, is that really your desire? I, the Lord, search the heart. That's what God says. God alone can change your heart. You know, I want to make just one last appeal. There'll probably be at least two tonight, but one last appeal. If it's your heart desire, if it's really, if the Lord's laying it on your heart, you know, there's something that's been in between me and the Lord is calling me to a deeper walk with Him. And I'd rather have Jesus 
than anything this world affords. And I want to commit my life to the Lord afresh, anew, through baptism. I'd like to invite you to come forward. It's a personal decision. But you know in your heart if you'd rather have Jesus. You do. I do. And I want to live for Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I'm standing here with my friends, CJ and Deanna. Lord, tonight they're saying they'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords, than anything it has to offer. And so, Lord, I ask that you would strengthen them in this decision, that you would give them the resolve to stand alone upon the Word of God, come what may, that they would see Jesus, their Savior, as altogether lovely, and as the one who has all power to set them free. As we pray tonight, if it's your desire, to say, Lord, I'd rather have you than anything this world offers, I just invite you to raise your hands as all heads are bowed. Lord, as your people, we want to commit to being faithful, to being the consistent Christian example that you've called us to be, that we would walk as Christ has walked, that we would live as Jesus has lived, so that other people would not see us, but that they would see Jesus lifted high. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.